Thank you so much for joining me, Jason and Mike. Really excited to have you both here. Um, been a longtime fan of both of you. And so super excited to make this podcast happen. Excited for this. Like, I, I remember like day two of the show when you showed up with the backpack and the gear and you're like, I'm doing a podcast. I was like, all right. And, and here it is. And you've, <laughs> you, you've been crushing it. So. You were one of the early ones that knew about the podcast that I was shilling it to. And yeah, that was funny. I had all the equipment in the podcast. In my backpack, I figured out how to travel with it. Uh, two cameras, the XLR inputs, everything. And <laughs> unfortunately, I've been dialing it back a little bit on like the in-person podcast. I want to get back to that because I love those in-person conversations, but it's bear market vibes. So <laughs> right now, just Riverside. Yeah, but I would love to start the conversation with both of you. I was watching some of your previous podcasts and uh, your early days of Blockworks. And I mean, I think you guys started Blockworks at the Pico Top in 2017 in the December time frame. But really what kind of separated you guys from the pack was just your hustle in 2018 and 19. So I'd love to, for you guys just to recap a little bit of like the early days of Blockworks and how you guys kind of grew to what you are today. Mike, you want to do the honors? Uh, sure, sure will. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was, I say uh, Blockworks was totally Jason's fault. He, he, he dragged me in uh, kicking and screaming. Now, uh, you know, the early days, like, like you said, we, we found a Blockworks in December of 2017. So, you know, the first, you know, two years of Blockworks were spent building during a bear market. And we started with a pretty different vision for what Blockworks was going to be. It's, it's evolved quite a bit since that time. But we started with kind of these smaller smaller conferences, right? Where it was like, you know, you, after a work, kind of a happy hour is like a four hour type, four hour type event. Uh, and then we sort of scaled the conferences. We found podcasts along the way and we sort of built a media company actually in reverse of how most people do, which is you start by building an audience, then you try to monetize it. Maybe it's because we weren't like a VC funded company or maybe because we were building during a bear market. And, you know, to your point, we had to be a little bit scrappier than other media companies that were better funded. Did you guys raise any money or did you guys self-fund the entire thing? We did a, a really small rap friends and family round in the beginning. Okay. Like, very, nice. very small. I mean, I mean, it was yeah. me and Jason for the majority of it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, but we, we built it in reverse and we, we all, we were always very conscious of, you know, we wanted to, you know, create value and, and build that audience, but we also always needed to make money. And there's a, you know, I think we got, we got pretty good at threading that fine line between, Hey, like you don't want to be chasing every shiny thing, just everything to get money in the door, but also that's a very iterative process. And sometimes by doing things, you know, to get money, you sort of do get a better understanding of what your customers actually want and are actually willing to pay for. And I bet some folks are figuring that out during this bear market. Definitely. Definitely. No, and uh, and on that note, I, I mean, in your previous podcast, Jason, you were talking about how you were just relentless and kind of your pursuit for uh, cold emailing both of you guys, uh, kind of your early days on LinkedIn and trying to get people to show up to events and also paying for Ubers. And I mean, just kind of going through similar stuff like on the startup side with the fund, it's been super fascinating and like even inspiring just to go back and hear some of your early stories. And so... Um, it, it's cool to hear from both of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely have some of those. I mean, I think relentless is a is a nice way to put it. Uh, it was it, it felt about as scrappy as you could get. Uh, I think in the early <laughs> days, like Mike and I, you know, there, there's some of these stories that I always laugh. It's like you know, Mike and I would wake up. We we both had full time jobs when we launched Blockworks, so we didn't because we didn't go raise like a big venture round. We didn't. We had to 
you know, we had to keep our full-time jobs for the first, I think it was six or seven, six months. So we would do things like, I remember we, our first event ever was February of 2018. We would wake up before work every day at like, you know, four or 5 a.m. or something, rip out like 500 LinkedIn messages. And basically the thought was like, all right, we're selling tickets to this first event, 50 bucks a pop. We'd jump on LinkedIn, send it to like 500 Joe Schmoes. And, you know, if like 1% of them clicked on the link, you'd get like five people clicking the link and, yeah. you know, maybe 20% of those five people would buy a discounted ticket. So you, you message 500 people every morning, you get one person buying a ticket, we give them a 50% discount, we're making 25 bucks a day. And I do that, Mike does that. So we sell two <laughs> tickets a day, 10 tickets a week, 40 <laughs> tickets a month, boom, you've got a Blockworks event. So uh, yeah, we definitely have a lot of those kind of scrappy stories from the beginning. <laughs> No, I, I love it. And I, I think ultimately it's, I mean, the hustle that you really need, I mean, uh, during the bear markets and that really kind of sets you up for all the success that you guys and the team had in this past bull market. Maybe just to like recap, like the past like bull market, I think was much different than 2017 with ETH, like primarily being ICOs, not very many actually usable products, uh, typically just white papers and tokens to actually going to building through the bear market, having DeFi summer really kicking things off and then kind of all the craziness that happened afterwards. Was there anything like in this like bull market that really kind of surprised you or like, I mean, there's a bunch of things, but anything like in particular that like really caught you off guard or surprised you? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how original my, my take is here. I think I was surprised by a lot of the same things that other people were surprised <laughs> by. I Yep. Did not expect that FTX was a fraud. Uh, that was not on my uh, <laughs> 2022 bingo card. But I think, you know, outside of that, you know, you mentioned that 2017, even at that time, and maybe this is Jason and I coming out with different, slightly more skeptical goggles. You know, now we've been in, in crypto for a long time and our perspective, I think, has changed quite a bit. But, you know, at that time, even people in the space that we were talking to, it's like, yeah, these ICOs, many of them were were sort of vaporware. And I think people knew that, like there were things called DentaCoin and stuff like that. And, you know, to your point, a lot of what happened in starting in 2020 with DeFi summer, but then NFTs on top of that. And these are much more professional, you know, sort of infrastructure level things like FTX or other layer ones. It felt a lot more real. And I think one thing that caught me off guard and was slightly disappointing was, you know, when the emperor you sort of found out that the emperor wasn't wearing any clothes and that what I thought was a lot of organic activity was actually like eight crypto banks that were just levering up and doing PVP sort of activity, you know, which is a little bit less real than I think a lot of us would have maybe wanted. That's not to say what happened in this last bull market wasn't, uh, wasn't real, but I was a little bit disappointed to, to understand where some of the activity was really coming from. I don't know, Jason, if you... Uh, characterize it differently no i mean I, i'm like i think that's the obvious answer super surprised by you know that that like crypto is basically just this like one big levered levered up industry um i like there were some other surprises both on the to the to the upside and to the downside like the good and the bad i'd say like i was really caught off guard by nfts like that took me months mm -hmm. to get like almost emotion, like emotionally okay <laughs> with these things that like this was this yeah. new part of crypto that was here to stay and uh that was really interesting I, th I think i was surprised and will always be surprised in bull markets at how the what i think are the most valuable things in the industry that the attention can get so sucked away from them so like what i mean by this in the last bull market was 
I, I think probably the most valuable things that got built in the last bull market was was DeFi and like you had like Uniswap and like Aave and Compound and like those like really came into their own and there were a couple of days back you know back in 2020 when the when the volume of Uniswap even passed Coinbase like the biggest US exchange which was that really was remarkable but. At, for the, at the same time, you had a whole like 12 to 18 months where the majority of attention and activity and volume and like eyeballs and even like price action was in like the metaverse and like decentralized land and like P- PFPs. And I was like, so so it's just always surprising and like how much attention can get pulled away from like the quote unquote most valuable things, I think. Yeah. I mean, Mike, I, I was definitely, I mean, I don't think really too many people predicted the FTX clap and how quickly it kind of unraveled. That mm. was, that was pretty insane. Um, and then N- NFTs also caught me off guard. I, I, I didn't really understand the hype. Luckily my co-founder is much more NFT native than I am. And so, uh, he's a little bit better at them, but no, I, I, I was always super fascinated by like the user metrics standpoint. And I think from that point, the NFTs for me were a big eye opener, just seeing how really they got ingrained into culture. And I think it was Electric Capital's recent report where they said like 70 or 80% of people's first time interaction with like on blockchains was through an NFT and instead of like DeFi. And so that to me, like as an onboarding tool, like really got me excited um, and seeing those metrics. But I definitely agree. I mean, it was it was cool to see DeFi summer really kick off things and all the different food tokens and yield farming. But the space has definitely come a long way since 2017 uh, when you guys first started. Hmm. Maybe on that I have note, actually just, just I know, one note on the on the NFTs. Sorry, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you there, Logan. But go for it. One, one framework that I think might be helpful. This is a way that I've started to think a little bit differently, even about bubbles and attention. But I think that bubbles give you like a little bit of a glimpse into the future. And what I mean by yeah. that is like usually when a concept ends up attracting enough emotion and capital and investment to create something that looks like a bubble, usually that first iteration isn't necessarily right. And it ends up being a capital incinerator for the people that get in very early or buy at the wrong time, yeah. but actually it sort of ends up being directionally correct. And like, Many examples of this, right? Uh, South Sea bubble, right? One of the most famous bubbles of all time. Well, they were actually kind of right about like the economic engine for the next, you know, two or 300 years, right? About uh, trade. And actually, it was a preview of modern central banking. Then there's like the railroads, right? Which was a lot of the people that laid the tracks for the railroads all lost money. But then the next wave came in and built. Even, you know, ICOs. ICOs, at the time, it felt like vaporware, but look, we repurposed it. Nobody calls it that anymore. But that is the way that a lot of these crypto projects uh, raise funds now. Um, and I think NFTs, just the amount of attention that they captured, I'm, I'm not going to opine on whether or not like a monkey JPEG deserves to be $400,000. I'm not smart enough to know if that's uh, properly <laughs> valued or not. But I do think the amount of attention that it garnered, and to your point, like I think the, uh, the Electric Capital Developer Report kind of supports this, it's indicative of of a trend in there. I think, and it shows, it tells me that NFTs are directionally right. And one thing that happens in crypto in these cycles is that we kind of take an initial concept that was attractive, like the hype thing in one cycle, and then we fix it and make it better in the next cycle. So I think it's just just a framework to be thinking about uh, going forward. I, I would definitely agree. Um, 
definitely uh, lots of words of wisdom there. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you, all three of us really saw the promise of like what Ethereum and smart contracts could build uh, in 2017. And that's what really forced us to stick around. And I mean, this time, definitely DeFi had its moment, NFTs had its moment. And I think going forward, I'm definitely just excited to see what continues to really gain more traction in the bear market and um, really where the users are going to go. I'm, I'm really fascinated. I, I think the biggest thing that I'm definitely and continue to focus on is how are we going to get more people into the ecosystem? And I guess like maybe shifting the conversation a little bit. One thing that uh, the Blockworks team has really put a lot of effort into um, initial or past year and really kind of staffing up the team on is your research report. And I would love to like talk a little bit about like what you guys want or like your vision for the research and the team there um, and some of the things that they're like following along with and excited for um, in 2023. I think I can I can take a first stab at that. I mean, so I'd go back to like the early days of Blockworks. We've I'm sure we've gotten a lot wrong over the last five years. But one of the things that we got really right was this thesis that crypto would eventually become this large institutional asset class and that the number of investors who would come into the industry was going to grow by orders of magnitude. And uh, if, if you believe that, which is kind of starting to play out already, you also probably believe our next thesis, which is like those investors are just going to demand a much better source of information. And so over the last like four to five years, we've built what I would call like the softer information or like the top of funnel information, newsletters, podcasts, really good news and reporting and journalism, large social media accounts. Like that's kind of that like soft information or top of funnel, whatever you want to call it. Now we're building the bottom of the funnel or the like hard information, which is Blockworks Research. So Blockworks Research is a platform that basically gives investors the ability to have three different kind of pillars all in one place, research, so like deep protocol research, uh, governance, so protocol governance, um, the ability to like look at what's happening with like proposals um, and like inside of like from soup to nuts, from like discord to on chain, like what's going on with the proposal. Uh, and then the third bucket is analytics. So like deep protocol analytics. Um, so the, the first part of that is launched. We launched Blockworks Research as a research platform. Governance launches soon. And then uh, the analytics side is going to launch later this summer. So yeah, really, really excited about it. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, con- congrats on or pre congrats on the upcoming launch. And it's always hard. And I know it's always a little bit of a scramble for an upcoming product launch. But no, I've been following along uh, with the research that the team's been putting out and uh, definitely a big fan. And I know you guys even host Twitter spaces and I've jumped into a few and uh, listened. So would highly recommend people kind of checking it out. But I guess like on the research side um, and being really kind of even in tuned with all the podcasts and guests that you both have on each of your respective podcasts, what are some things that you're excited about for 2023 or I guess maybe even backing up just because the space is really driven, unfortunately or fortunately, by narratives. Are there any like new narratives that you see like forming coming into 2023 that will like kick on kickstart like a new trend? Jason, you want to you take a first stab at that? Yeah, I would say big narratives that I think are I think big narratives right now are like there's the ETH merge going on, a lot of eyes on Shanghai, a lot of conversation around like liquid staking derivatives. You have like two different types of players in the liquid staking derivative space. You have like the 
kind of more decentralized players like Rocket Pool. You have folks who maybe like sit in the in the middle, like a like a Lido, and then you have folks who are kind of doing this in a more centralized way, like like Coinbase with with CVETH. So like I think there I think that's a big bucket where we're paying attention to. Um, there's another bucket which is like the app chain thesis. So Mike has a pod uh, podcast that he, or season of Bell Curve that he's hosting right now called uh, it's season three of Bell Curve, uh, all about the app chain thesis that he's hosting with someone at Reverie and um, just exploring this like big app chain thesis and that's kind of going on in the Cosmos space. And then I think, um, I mean, I know I know you spend a lot of time in the Solana ecosystem, Logan. Like that's something that Mike and I are thinking about is like what's like Solana seems pretty beaten down right now and um, it feels maybe like overly beaten down and it kind of feels similar to what Ethereum felt like back in 2018 and 2019 and so we're spending time thinking about like where is where does the Solana ecosystem go from here so like that's those are probably the three big narratives that I'm thinking about right now are more like the ecosystem narratives um, if you asked our research analysts they'd probably get a little more specific in terms of like Celestia's data vil- uh Data availability main that goes live later this uh, later this year, like ZK EVMs. I know they pay a lot of attention to like DApps moving from like native chains over to Arbitrum, kind of like Arbitrum season, like cross chain communication, some of that kind of stuff. But I'm spending more time just like thinking about ecosystems right now. I don't know, Mike, what if you agree or disagree with that stuff? Yeah, the the way that I would I, I want to kind of talk about each of these, but the way that I would broadly like carve out crypto today. So if you think of like what we're a lot of the focus and the building and the attention in crypto has gone to building infrastructure and it's gone into building infrastructure around one very specific constraint, which is maintaining a low cost of uh, maintaining a validator basically so that people can check the chain. And like that is the vast majority of what the conversation in crypto today is like coalesced around. And that's kind of ETH as an ecosystem. And then Solana represents to me a different perspective because it it says we are re- much more focused on scalability and maintaining low latency, right? Because we think a lot of the interesting use cases for crypto is going to require low latency. So we're willing to like flex a bit on the spectrum of this one very specific definition of decentralization to enable use cases around honestly finance but 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 gaming is is like the the one that kind of uh, you know comes to mind for me when you talk about low latency. So it's kind of like that, and that's those are both infrastructure things. On top of it, I think a very under discussed, but something that's going to come much more into the fore is application applications that need to get built. Right, like right now today, people talk about themselves. I'm a user of Ethereum, or I'm in the Solana ecosystem. Ten years from now no one is going to be a user of like, people won't be like, I'm using Ethereum, I'm using Solana. The value capture happens at the app layer. And there's a lot of really interesting experimentation going on around creating app specific block space, right? And, and, and a lot of focus on product. And that is largely coming from the Cosmos ecosystem. So there are kind of these three like big worldviews that are coalescing in crypto right now. I think there's a lot to dive into on each one of those. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to dive into each. I think, I mean, both of you highlighted infrastructure. On that front, I mean, really what kicked off a lot of these, I mean, Ethereum, even since all three of us have gotten into the ecosystem, has really planned on kind of doing um, 
some form of either sharding or more data availability and then layer twos. And that has always kind of been like on the future roadmap for ETH. I think that was even highlighted even more so in 2020 once DeFi summer started kicking off. But when the NFTs gained popularity and having the crazy gas fees that we did, it became paramount. So do you think, I mean, that really the core infrastructure and just increasing scalability is the biggest thing that we need for to kind of move the ecosystem forward? Or can we can we continue forward with like Ethan, I guess it's roadmap. It's a really good question. It's, it's hard because you kind of need both at the same time, right? Like you, you, you do need you do need the infrastructure that supports applications, but ultimately what you want, right? At least when I close my eyes and think about the future of, of crypto, is like it's the thing that people have talked about since the beginning of, of time in this space, right? <laughs> I guess 12 years ago, which is look, people aren't even gonna know that they're interacting with crypto, they're just gonna be using applications. So they both yep. need to happen because you you need applications that have a UI UX that's attractive to users and solves problems that they have in their life, right? Or it helps them do things better or cheaper or faster or has use cases that are impossible in, in the current architecture of either Web2 or traditional finance. But then you also need a really robust architecture that supports that and that also upholds the ethos and ideas of crypto. And you, it's, it's hard for me to prioritize. Like, I, I frankly, I think there are probably multiple different ways to skin that cat. And like, I think ETH's, the ETH roadmap is is going to be successful, I think. Like ETH is the clear front runner to me. And um, so I think they'll be successful, but I think there will be other experiments that are tried. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd love to be smart enough to have a crystal ball, but I, I, I think it's still very <laughs> early days. I'm hesitant well, to make it. Also, it's just important, important to remind uh, Remind ourselves, Logan, that like competition across ecosystems ends up helping all the ecosystems. So like when 100%. you have uh, really fast transaction speed and like a lot of sc like scalability on Solana, that pushes the L2s to move faster on Ethereum and like the L2s to launch. And like now there's like a great L2 ecosystem. And then like when Cosmos gives applications the ability to have like more customization and like um, – uh, the ability to like build their own constraints and not be like forced into like the blockchain's constraints like that then like creates this kind of like L3 narrative on on ETH and like I think and then they and then they all learn from each other and like you know ETH took like liquid staking kind of from Cosmos and the, everyone's kind of learning from each other and I think that's a it's a really healthy market right now. I I, I mean I, I totally agree with both of your points. I mean I definitely try not to be a maxi of any single thing. I think if anything, I mean, back in my early days, I was definitely an ETH maxi uh, and through 2018 through 2020, really. Um, and a very kind of hard believer in the Ethereum roadmap and their ecosystem. I agree that, I mean, I think every single chain, uh, kind of the app chain thesis, I mean, the high throughput, low latency, and kind of layer two approach, layer three with like the settlement layer, they'll all work. It, to me, it's just, I'm fascinated by which, what they're optimizing for. And if they're, if that is the correct thing to be optimizing for, for um, the user experience side and also the development side. Um, 
So I'm, I am really curious to see how the three ultimately plan out. One thing, though, that jumped out to me, Mike, that you said was kind of the value that accrues to like the applications instead of the, the protocol itself. And that for a long time, like the big thesis in the industry has been more like the fat protocol thesis. So could you maybe exp- go like slightly more in depth on like the some of your ideas around um maybe cosmos and also like the app chain thesis and how like value will accrue to apps sure so i'm borrowing you know from a lot of uh people that have laid the groundwork in cosmos there that are much smarter than me but you know if you look at the analog to web 2 the most most of the value has accrued to applications that are built on top of these open protocols like http and things like that and, you know, it turns out that across not only Web2, but also industries like finance or computing, that relationship that you have with the consumer ultimately ends up being really powerful. And it allows you to exact leverage across the supply chain or value chain that ultimately supports that, that product. And I think there's a great sort of example, which was coined about the early PC industry. It's something called the smiling curve. So if you can imagine a curve that kind of goes like this, right? And in the, you know, the early stages of the value chain, there is R&D, right? And you secure your sort of value lock-in through patents and hard, hard technology, right? So there's a lot of value that accrues there. In the middle, there's fabrication, right? Which is sort of implementing that R&D and actually making those things. And then there's uh, the consumer end of the, the, the actual, the, PC OEMs, I guess, at at that stage. And they have this lock-in with the consumer around brand and marketing and distribution. And the reason it's a smiling curve is because value accrues both to the early stage where there's lock-in with patents and to the end stage where there's lock-in the consumer. It's the people in the middle, the fabricators that actually get squished. So what Cosmos is, and oftentimes actually what ends up happening, the last thing I'll say is often vertical integration actually ends up happening starting at uh, the consumer. So like Amazon is a really interesting example of this where they got the lock-in with the consumer, right, with the original legacy business, and now they've vertically integrated with AWS. They've built the hardware stack underneath, and that's where they make all their profits. So it's it's just pretty interesting. Um, and, and I think a lot of people in Cosmos have, are operating off of that theory where they're laser, laser focused on building products that people want to use, making themselves sticky, and then either like building kind of a, a super app, right, where you integrate sort of horizontally or you go vertical, right, and you try to control different layers of the stack. Um, so that that's kind of the – and there's a lot of just fascinating uh, experimentation that's going on, you know, in the Cosmos ecosystem. There, there definitely is. I've, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I have been impressed with by Cosmos is just really how – engage their developer community is every time i talk with someone in the uh, cosmos ecosystem they really rave about it um and there's very few ecosystems that like have that passionate of developers and so it's definitely cool to see from the cosmos side and i mean even i have been talking with more developers in the ecosystem and really trying to understand like where that core passion comes from because there, there is definitely a lot of energy brewing i would assume the passion comes from the ability to fully customize your application which more and more yeah. people are going to want. Like, imagine if you went to go build on, I don't know, something like AWS, and they were like, hey, you can only build your website. Like, you, ha- you have to have, like, three columns on your website. And you're like, well, 
it doesn't make sense for my application. Like I want like one column and they're like, no, 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 no. But like the infrastructure is built so that you need three columns. So, and I think some folks might feel like that's a, probably a horrible example, but like or analogy, but uh, I'm sure some people maybe feel like that if they're building on ETH today is like, there are a lot of constraints and like people still build on ETH because it's the biggest ecosystem by far and they're, all the liquidity is there and all the users are there and like the capital is there. But I, I see why people are so excited about Cosmos. Definitely. It's, it would be an interesting ecosystem to watch. The other one that like I've been super fascinated from the technical point is like the avalanche and the avalanche ecosystem. And I, I found it fascinating. I mean, I think they're very engineering heavy, which sometimes is great from like the tech point of view, but you also have to like convert that tech into things that people can understand and build upon. Cosm or Avalanche to me almost is doing very similar things to Cosmos. H have you seen like at least on the timeline or guess like the same amount of like energy to like the Avalanche ecosystem? To be to be if, if so or if not, why yeah. why do you think that's the case? I think there's a tremendous amount of positive energy around that ecosystem. I'll put my hand up and say it's kind of the one that I know the least. Uh, not a comment on that ecosystem at all. It's just uh, I have the brain of a five year old, Logan. And when you have the brain of a five year old, there's only so much uh, attention that you can. I wouldn't give say that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> there, it, there's no, uh, I, Avalanche is interesting, Logan, because. I agree with you that they're very engineering heavy. I also think they have a really good BD team. And um, they've, yep. I think when, when, when projects kind of have strong BD teams, you see where their priorities are. So Polygon's a really good example. Polygon's got a phenomenal BD team. You can see what they are trying to do. They are trying to be like the brand that sits at the, at the they're trying to be the infrastructure for like when Web2 brands come into the ecosystem and like, web two brand kind of crosses over into a web three brand or like web 2.5, whatever you want to call it. Polygon wants to be there for them. And I think Avalanche takes a different approach, which is they say, look, we, all, we have a great DeFi community with like Trader Joe and things like that. But also when, you know, KKR goes to tokenize a fund, like that's where Avalanche wants to sit. Or like when, I don't know, Deloitte wants to like bring, I don't know, I'm kind of scarred from some of the enterprise blockchain stuff of 2017. But, you know, I think Avalanche is trying to do that game as well. So um, I think people will optimize for different things in their BD strategy. I agree. And maybe on the BD front, it's been super interesting to me to watch all the different blockchains and their approaches to BD. I think Polygon, as you said, has been phenomenal and at least attracting like these big names to build on their ecosystem. In some sense, the community or different communities, as I see it, have somewhat of like... I mean, if you're in the Polygon community, you're very optimistic about these partnerships. But if you're in other communities, sometimes they can be viewed as like a negative thing. And in large part, my point of view here is that because a lot of them and kind of how some of this recruiting happens is not always totally transparent to like other ecosystems. Is what have you guys kind of like found or what are your thoughts around like these different BD tactics? I don't think any are right or wrong in like web two worlds, people pay for partnerships all the time. I, I don't think that's um, strange or weird in any sense. I think just because maybe in web three, there's so much tribalism about like our favorite chain, people have like a little bit of a visual reaction if like their project moves from one chain to another. Um, even like recently with like ETH NFTs as well, I've seen them, um, some projects move to other chains. 
So I guess like in, in like high level, any thoughts on like different chain speedy approaches and like communities um, reactions to them? I'll, I have some thoughts. Like I think the um, I think it's too early to tell is the really boring answer that I'd give you. And the reason that I say that is like the when enterprises came on to did blockchain things in 2016 and 2017 and 2018 it all flopped it was like royal yeah. royal failures i'd say i think some people apply that lens that that's why when polygon does a big bd deal with like instagram people are just like yeah nothing there bunch of fluff but and i'll be the first one to say like i i did that oftentimes when like oh a, you know an l1 partners with like a big brand i'm like ah that reminds me of 2016 and 2017 and 2018 I bet, I bet that's the wrong take, though, because eventually these brands will come into crypto and the people who are kind of saying, like, that's a bunch of fluff, they'll get caught on the wrong side of that trade. And so there's that. There's also ecosystems that, like, don't care about, like Cosmos, I would say. Um, Cosmos is, I, I, I don't really know, but I would assume their, their idea is like, look, we are, like, crypto will become the TAM of crypto, will just grow exponentially over the years, and we want to own the crypto-native community because just like if you built for, like, the internet-native community in the 90s and early 2000s, like, you you won because, like, the internet, the TAM of the internet just got so freaking big. So I think that would be Cosmos's thing is, like, we just want to build, like, such good products for the super crypto-natives because eventually these, these super crypto-native products will overtake the kind of traditional products. I would I would agree with that. I would just say I think kind of think about there's like external facing BD, which are these these big sort of deals. With honestly, the some of the polygon the the Starbucks NFT one I thought was very interesting, and I actually think the deal at Starkware and Visa have that partnership is like very interesting. But but I think there's also internal BD as well, and we are here. We've been talking about some of the technological sort of. Like what makes this L1, you know, competitive or more successful that the truth is there's a lot of, there's a lot of sales and brand and BD work that happens internal to crypto. And what will make these L1s successful at the end of the day, part of it is their roadmap, but part of it is how, you know, how successful they are in recruiting devs and users and builders. I definitely agree. Um, it's. I'm I'm super interested on that front and maybe on that, like, actually, I, I want to go back and like kind of wrap up our conversation around like ETH and also Solana briefly, and then maybe pivot again into like some of, I'm super interesting. I, I think you guys are some of the best people in the podcast game. And I would love to learn from both of you on uh, the different podcast front. So let me wrap up the ETH and Solana, and then we'll kind of pivot to that. So on the ETH front, I think, I mean, it was amazing uh, what ETH has accomplished this year by switching from proof of work to proof of stake. That was massive. Uh, and the tech technical complexity to do that was very high. And so I definitely applaud the team. Now the conversation is switching into L2s. And I think people are kind of just now wrapping their head around that and like trying to uh, figure out what applications can support on the L2 front. And then we're also having conversations about L3s. So on a high level, I would love to learn some of your thoughts around like Ethereum. Um, it, how, how bullish are you guys going into 2023 on ETH and like the L2 and L3 roadmap? Um, and then we'll jump into briefly Solana. 
So I think I, there are a couple different ways to, to answer that. So there's, I think it might be worth talking a little bit about Shanghai, the Shanghai update that's coming up, because that's the next big like catalyst that actually has the, the potential to impact price. But that's kind of more of a short to midterm. And then, you know, we can talk about longer term. So short to midterm, you know, people are very focused on Shanghai because that's the, that's the point in time that people are going to be able to withdraw the ETH that has been staked thus far. And there's a lot of ETH that's been staked. I think it's, I actually don't have the number off. It's something to the order of like $25 billion worth of ETH. I'm pretty sure that's been staked. And the thing about, the thing about crypto is that it's a very inefficient market and stuff tends not to be priced in. So there's probably a decent chance that people are underestimating the impact of the ability to withdraw. That being said, I think it really depends on how the market positions itself heading in uh, to like drastically oversimplify how the mechanics actually work. If people think that $5 billion worth of ETH is going to be withdrawn, but then only $2 billion are withdrawn, then that actually could be a good thing because of the positioning that like market makers will have leading up to the unlock. But so it really it's, you know, people are really obsessing. Is it like 1 billion or 2 billion or 10 billion that's going to be withdrawn? A lot of it is about how the market positions itself leading up to the, the unlock. But I, I think it'll be a little bit more uh, impactful than, than some people are saying right now. I don't know if you guys have, have thoughts on that, but um, I, I've, I've thought like, I feel the need to caveat and say that I am an ETH bull. Like I, you know, I always say this, like my still, name, Mike, I am ETH bull. <laughs> I am ETH bull. I am very like, it is, it is the asset that when people are like, I want to get involved in crypto. I'm like, you should, you should buy, buy ETH. Um, it's the, it's the one that I say. That being said, I just from a pattern matching perspective, it, I'm just kind of getting flashbacks to it's become the consensus bet. In crypto, right? Like everyone, yeah. it's just very, very consistent. And what that means is, and what some of the Bitcoin people missed in the last bear market was that when something becomes consensus, there's like a dampening on volatility that happens because you, it's, it, the asset becomes much larger. So the incremental amount of capital that needs to move in to get those like parabolic price increases is higher and higher and higher, right? So like Bitcoin is the only institutional crypto asset. ETH is about to become an institutional asset, which means that you're not going to get these crazy pumps like Solana got in the last bull market. And that's actually fine. That's the sign of a maturing asset. But I do just like one little bit of concern. I actually love the ETH roadmap. I love the modular, you know, vision for scaling uh, layer three rollups, you know, settling down to generalized L2s with a common settlement data availability and consensus. Like it's a, I really agree. It's a super strong roadmap, but I get a little nervous, uh, you know, just in terms of how consensus it's become. I, I suppose that's my yep. that's my uh, high level take on ETH. Yeah. I guess, I mean, real quick, is there? Would you guys like assign like a probability at all to any of these ETH someday not becoming the dominant smart contract platform and a newer platform kind of taking uh, market share in terms of like? user activity would you rate that like relatively high or low probability high probability that other evms that like are, ETH, that other ETH, not, eth is no longer like I, I mean eth by far is like the dominant in terms of dvl tvl but i guess in terms of like 
on-chain activity. I mean, even with layer twos, how do I phrase this? Would the ETH ecosystem, including like the layers on twos on top of it, do you think that would ever be second to some of these other smart contract platforms? Or do you think ETH and the layer twos will always remain the dominant smart contract platform uh, in mm-hmm. terms of like a higher low probability um, for the future? It's a, it's a much higher probability thing to say that it's a high probability. It's a high probability <laughs> ETH remains the dominant one. Yeah. Other people, I think, though, will like, you know, if you look back like three years, ETH had 99% market share of smart contracts out there. Uh, now it's probably, I don't know what the number is now, probably like 70 or something, 70%. Um, I'm totally making that number up at like rough ballpark. I would assume other people kind of like eat away at that market share, but I I'm, I feel pretty confident Ethereum will remain the the dominant L1. I, I'm so, not. No, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not smart enough to be. Is the honest is the honest answer. <laughs> I I do think what's worth stating though for for ETH and all these smart contracts, you know, these uh, layer ones, is that we haven't talked at all about the OG uh, Bitcoin. Uh, and I know that's like fallen out of favor with some of the like, the, but the one thing Bitcoin has really going for it is a, a very simple and easy to understand brand, but it also is the only one that's doing proof of work and kind of competing for the money use case. Everyone else is competing on more of a technology sort of basis. And True. I, you know, to me, that makes it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit more up for grabs, I think. I think I would phrase it, ETH is competing for a larger probably market share, but it's introduced more competitors. So that's why I just don't think I'm smart enough to, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know who's going to win at the end of the day. <laughs> and then briefly on like the Solana front, I know it, I think Mike, you said initially, it kind of seems like it had its $80 ETH moment comparative to 2018 and that time frame where it had this massive run up. I mean, I think ETH was a couple dollars or $10 around that time frame and then ran up to 11 or 1400. I can't remember exactly. And then all the way back down to 80 and Solana definitely had a similar type trajectory. Is the, is it the community or is it the tech that gets you excited or just everybody in the, uh, blockchain ecosystem that like <laughs> going back to earlier kind of like the bubble uh, that like is predicting kind of like change of sentiment like I'm curious how you guys are thinking about that ecosystem because I, I would still even today it's relatively non-consensus that like Solana is going to do well definitely not consensus I think I, I there's like kind of dimensions and then jason i want to tag you in here but i think there's like initially what got at least me thinking about it was purely like a pattern matching thing i was just violently reminded as eth was you know plummeting right it just a lot of the so the narrative going back to 2018 was that there are these other layer ones that are going to come in and they're going to be better tech they're going to eat ethereum's lunch uh ethereum is disorganized and it was all just scams uh it wasn't legitimate activity you know because it was icos uh, they tried all this stuff. It's not good. Also, the DAO was still a thing back then. So there was the Ethereum classic versus there was like all of these reasons why it wasn't going to work. And people crapped on it like really aggressively. And it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. Um, and it just reminded me very 
five, that that's so there was pure pattern recognition thing with Solana, and then that obviously helps with the risk reward. I also think a big thing for these different L1s that's important to have is a North Star and a differentiated worldview. And a when an L1 can't articulate what its North Star is and how it's different, then I think it's time to get worried about that layer one. That's why I'm like, my, at least from my view of crypto, there are like three different well-articulated worldviews that align around L1s. I guess four, if you include Bitcoin, there's the Bitcoin kind of, you know, the world is burning view. Then there's like the ETH, you know, scaling, uh, you know, decentralized smart contracts with this sort of validator problem. The Solana vision to me is one of scalability. The North Star is speed, scalability. And like, I think where it's going to win is low latency applications. And it will be more appealing to very large swaths of real world use cases around finance and gaming. And then there's the Cosmos one, which is, you know, we've been talking a lot about apps and, and product worldview. So I think all of those things just jumped out, at least to me, and was like, this is an ecosystem that's worth paying attention to. And it seems like people are rallying around it and getting stronger instead of abandoning it, which is another sort of positive sign. Yeah, I agree with all that. Cool. Um, no, it's it's cool to, just to get both of your thoughts. I think as uh, prominent as both of you are in the ecosystem and you're obviously the research team that you guys have built in-house, but also just being able to speak with all the people that you do on a daily basis. I, I love to hear your guys' opinions and uh, see where you guys think the market's going. On that front, um, I, I really am a big admirer of what both of you have created at BlockWorks and also just how good you, both of you are at the podcast game. Could you share like any words of actually let me back up. Why do you not think there's more content creators like specifically focused on like the educational side of things um, in crypto? Because what I see when I go to YouTube is like all these like thumbnails that's like and people like number go up. Why do you think there's not more content creators that at least like on like a pure like viewerships or download standpoint in the ecosystem? Is, is it just a harder thing? It's just number go up better. <laughs> look at look at how YouTube incentivizes you. If you put a if you put a crazy thumbnail with like, you know, crazy looking face and stuff like that and like kind of like a super clickbaity all caps title, you're getting 50,000 views. If you put out an episode that we put out like uh, 2 days ago on like the app chain thesis with like someone from Cosmos and like trying to answer really tough questions, you get like one tenth that. So, I think there's the incentive of of the platforms. Um I don't know. That's that's my that's my answer, Mike. What do you think? How much? Yeah, the the market yeah. for nuance is two orders of magnitude smaller than the market for clickbaity fluff. Unfortunately, I am glad that I mean overall, like the industry as it appears seems to be growing on like this content front, and especially all the new podcasts that you guys have been re releasing lately um, are super informative and. Uh, when I go out and talk with different people, uh, they're always very, um, always name the podcast that you guys produce as like the highest quality and listen to them. So are there any things that like you have really like taken away or learned from like your guests uh, that you've had on the podcast? Jason, you want to go for, I feel like I'm talking, monopolizing all that. No, go, I mean, most of the things I learn in crypto, I feel like, I, like the the podcast is kind of a cheat code because Mike and I have, can I have big, can I have big quite, yeah, you know it better than most. Like 
big questions about like li- literally I keep mentioning this th- season of the of bell curve about the app chain thesis, but like that came out of Mike and I trying to figure out the app chain, like cosmos and app chains and stuff like that. Um, and so I think it's kind of this cheat code and like the next season of bell curve will be on MEV, right. Or like on empire. If we want to, if we don't understand like what's going on with Genesis and like the deleveraging and stuff like that in crypto, like you can, I don't know. I, you can bring on someone who can, who can answer that. So I think it's every, every episode I learned something. I don't know. I'm, it's hard for me to point to one thing and be like, I learned that. I just want to shout out I, Miles O'Neill, who's our mutual friend and is the co-host of this season. He's been, <laughs> I keep joking. He's been my Sherpa for the app chain, this, but he, he really is a great guy. Just a lot of Logan, you know what I've learned is how many smart people work in crypto, which is a super fluffy, buttery answer. Mm-hmm. But like, it is, uh, it is remarkable how many people are just like, so deep into there i think when people aren't in crypto they look at they look at people who work in crypto they're like oh you're in crypto and then when you get in crypto and you work full time for a couple of years in crypto there are like there are dozens of industries getting built inside of crypto so you might yeah. have someone who's so freaking smart about defi they've never touched touched an nft in their life right and and vice Thank versa you. and and it's really interesting to see that no, I fully agree. And I mean, definitely would echo the sentiments of podcasts as a cheat code. I think, I mean, there is no way that I would even be talking with you guys or half the people that I've gotten on the podcast with, uh, without the podcast. And so I, I mean, if I always encourage people, like if they're thinking about doing one or at least like contributing to like the ecosystem in some way, whether that's the podcast or research or writing to do so, because I think the more that you give back to the community and kind of put out there, the more the community like wants to reward you. And it's it's been amazing how much you can actually learn from uh, the different guests. So it, it yeah. has been cool. Yeah. Um, in terms, I guess, like now that you are in what is this almost year five or I guess technically year five of Blockworks, mm-hmm. what are like been some of the biggest like learning lessons from going from like just you two to a large organization throwing events for thousands of people uh, running multiple different podcasts, the newsletter, all the research that you guys have done. Are there any like big takeaways that you have like learned either from like scaling a team or building a company? A ton, a ton. I mean, (laughs) one that comes to mind is like, you know, there's that, Age old saying about in investing, obviously, it's like you want to get greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Um, you always think about that applied to crypto, uh, applied to allocating capital and investing and trading. People don't realize how much that applies to folks building companies as well, especially in crypto. So I think that something that Mike and I did pretty well at Blockworks is like when you compare Blockworks to a lot of the other media companies in crypto at the top in 2021 and at the top of the market. There were people, you know, we let's say let's say it's Blockworks and a couple other competitors. Everyone had like 30 employees. We ended the year around like 50 people. Others ended at 150 people. And they kind of chased some of this euphoria. And then now we're on the other side of it. We're at the what I would call the bottom in crypto. And um, and I think we're being a little more aggressive than than other folks are. And I think uh, that's one thing I've learned is like how much psychology, like market psychology actually plays into into building. Um and then there's just a million people lessons that we've each learned over the years, I'd say, too. This is like not a good 
podcast answer because it's not particularly interesting. But yeah, the the stuff like you kind of go into it thinking I'm gonna be spending all my time like strategizing and doing this and that, and it's like your deal. You're it's people. It's like 85 percent of business is people and managing people. And there's a another lesson that I think Jason and I keep learning, and it's one that I struggle with more than Jason. There's, have you ever heard this expression? You're not half as smart as you thought and people aren't half as stupid as you hoped. And it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, uh, I would if, if I were in charge of this business, I would do this differently and they're doing this differently. But then you sort of get to where they were or where you hoped you'd be and you're like, ooh, I really understand why people did it this way. <laughs> Actually, it turns out there's a lot. And I think the story of BlockWorks in a lot of ways, like we built a media company backwards, but in a lot of important ways, I think Jason and I are have learned along the way why media companies, why media functions the way that it does and why people did things in that specific way that looks like it doesn't make sense from the outside, but there's like pretty good reason to, to do it. Um, so I, I don't know. That's, I think, a lesson that we've learned a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's probably could do a whole podcast about just the different lessons that each of you have learned uh, from scaling a, a company. So definitely appreciate sharing some of the insights in terms of, I guess, you have uh, permissionless uh, coming up. Could you share a little bit about uh, uh, the event and kind of big things that you guys are looking forward to either on terms of like continue launching the research product or um yeah other big like things that you guys are going to be launching in 2023 yeah i could talk to like the why behind permissionless for a second um permissionless came out of most things at BlockWorks come out of like a need that Mike and I have or like a need that we see in the industry, not like, oh, there's this grand vision to go build this big conference and it's going to be the best. It's like, oh, wait, this doesn't exist yet. And that and that, that's very much what happened with Permissionless. So you have a lot of great conferences in crypto that I would shout out. Like BlockWorks does some great ones with Digital Asset Summit, which is more like buttoned up institutional brand. Like Coindesk has been doing consensus for a while. Bitcoin, Miami... Uh, BTC Media does Bitcoin Miami. There's like ETH Denver. There's DevCon. There's like these great events. But there was no like flagship like tentpole event for the industry for the more like crypto native crowd, but where it's not just like an ETH event and, um, uh, and, and like a big place for everyone to come together. And that's what we wanted to build with Permissionless. So last year was the first year we did it in Palm Beach. 5,500 people came. This year we're going to Austin. Um, and one of the best parts about it is like we've, we've gotten to work really closely with Bankless, with David and Ryan at Bankless, and they've just been amazing partners. And it's cool to see it come together. I mean, this year, I, I just looked, at, we just put up some of our initial speakers and it's like, you know, Mary, the CEO from Uniswap, Eric Voorhees, Stani, Hasu, Santiago, uh, Justin Drake, Zaki from, from Cosmos, like Tarun, Kevin Iwaki, Meltem, uh, Vance and Michael from Framework, like Jim Bianco, just like really, really, really solid names uh, who are deeply crypto native as well. And uh, it's been cool to see it come together. Yeah. The other thing I would just say is, you know, one problem that we are very interested in, you know, without uh, opening the kimono completely is, uh, you know, Jason kind of mentioned that our, you know, I think... I'm a little biased, but I think we've got we got the best uh, analysts in the space, especially when it comes to, to DeFi. One thing that we are very interested in tackling is governance and how governance works. 
it's kind of this funny paradox in crypto because it's simultaneously very open, but also very opaque and unclear how it actually works. And it drives an enormous amount of it drives an enormous amount of how these protocols function and it drives alpha for yeah. investors too. So we're we're very focused on I don't want to say democratizing, but demystifying and making it easier to plug into and comprehend and uh, just shedding some light on it. Perfect. No, I'm, I'm, it is kind of funny um, how governance and some of these protocols can work. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm excited that you guys are launching that because <laughs> as much as it appears to be kind of on the surface open, a lot of it can be much more confusing than it actually looks. And on the permissionless stuff, I uh, can definitely say that it was an amazing event. I was uh, early. I think I was one of the first people to buy tickets last year for $15. And uh, the best investment of the year. It's a 100x return right there. Tickets were like 1500 bucks day of, bought it for 15 yeah. That's a 100x right there. <laughs> True. No, it was an amazing investment and a re really cool event. Um, and so looking forward to the one in Austin as well. I guess uh, just wrapping up, uh, I was curious if you guys like have any questions for me uh, just wrapping up the podcast. I, I have I, a question for you, Logan. You got it. Like when I think of Logan Drzemski, it is someone who is deep, deeply into the Solana ecosystem and um, especially in the bull market. Like I would have thought of you as someone in Solana, but having this conversation with you, it seems like you are pretty open-minded when it comes to different ecosystems. Um, what, what is your like updated view on where things go in terms of these different L1s? Um, yeah, I, I would, I mean, if anything, I was definitely an eat maxi. Hmm. Um, and hmm. so I think that like people, it's always hard because people want to like kind of put you in boxes. I think it's just like easier to like, you think of a person and you're like, all right, this box, but I've always tried to like fight against that. Um, and so my, like, I mean, after Tesla, I really did like, a lot of research. Uh, I shared some with you guys, but I, I really did a lot of research in terms of just like how blockchain scale. And I think after I came out of that like year, year and a half long research, I just viewed the industry and even like a lot of my like core beliefs with like Ethereum in a different light. So I'm personally in kind of like our belief at like Frictionless, the fund that I'm doing is really the analogy that we use is kind of like um, in the early days of the internet, this doesn't map one for one, but I think it's like semi-directionally correct, is you had dial-up internet and then you go to broadband and then fiber optics. And each time you have one of those jumps uh, in terms of like internet ban bandwidth speeds, engineers can build more interesting applications and they're less constrained by the sandbox that they're built in. And so... What we're kind of excited by going back to like Solana being like extremely low latency is these new kind of layer ones that are coming out with low latency and high throughput, Solana being one of those. Um, and so we're more broadly, I think if you maybe back up a little bit, every time like you get a new iPhone, you notice it's slightly faster. It's like 10, 20, 30% faster. If you go to a old phone and pick that up and the applications just run slightly slower, have slightly higher latency, you notice that difference. And so it's kind of like our point of view that you can have all the properties of decentralization um, that Ethereum and kind of Bitcoin, kind of the ethos of the crypto community 
and what they want uh, in these high throughput, low latency networks. And if that's the case, I'm not totally convinced that some of these earlier networks have optimized for the correct thing. Going back to like earlier, I'm definitely open minded and I want to learn. But my biggest thing now is I think they'll all will work. It's just from a developer and a user standpoint, are they optimized for the correct thing? And that's the thing that I think about a lot. Hmm. Okay, I've got a, I've got a, for, first of all, I resonate about that point about putting people in boxes. I, I literally tweeted twice about Solana and we have people going, oh, I really like in Solana. That's like, I've been tweeting about Ethereum and Bitcoin for five years. You know? but, uh, <laughs> but I guess two, two I, tweets I, about I just Solana. Noticed it. I just noticed you pivoted. <laughs> yeah. You know, guess you pivoted. Okay. You know, uh, so, okay, my, my question for you is one thing that I, I find very challenging is to, diligence some of these talks about scalability, right? There's a limit to how technical I can really be. And oftentimes you hear from these really smart people in the Ethereum community, we're going to be able to do every, we're not going to have to sacrifice anything because with these layer twos and layer threes, we can get the same low latency with the decentralization and neutrality at the base layer. Is there a steel man argument against that sort of like if, if you had to steal man the argument for why other ecosystems that are optimizing for that low latency scalability like what, how would you respond to that um i mean I, I like on a high level i would say it really goes back to my time at tesla and like really trying to articulate like the first principles of each of these blockchains and i think like really like my entire goal and like a lot of like the research that i've done throughout the years is trying to do like a more apples to apples comparison so you can remove the biases. Because I think that's like the biggest thing in the industry that I see because it is so narrative driven and there are extremely smart people. Are there like kind of key objectives that you can do from like an unbiased approach where you're like, this chain is doing a certain amount of throughput. This chain has a certain amount of full nodes. How do you measure decentralization? How do you measure scalability? If you can try to like, Mm, there's not like perfect metrics in the ecosystem, but I think they're starting to become more like actionable insights that you can do these apples to apples comparisons. Um, and so I would love the, the industry to move forward to kind of those. But if you can do the first principles analysis, uh, the space to me does look different. And I think like the core things um for like a layer one even a layer two in some sense are data availability the consensus um algorithm the execution environment and then also like how you store that data and those are like kind of the four main pillars that i look at for like the different blockchain fronts um in terms of like ethereum specifically i i don't know how deep we should go into it uh I treat Jason and I like we're five years old. That that'd be a good. Uh, that's a good. I, level do you guys have time? I, I don't want to. <laughs> sure. I don't want to cut the podcast yeah. or keep going if the podcast is too long. But happy to dive into it. So I think I mean at the core, if you listen to like Shri Ram, um, a lot of like these really smart technical people, what they'll all articulate, even like Anatoly, and what Ethereum is trying to do, the the end game for a lot of these blockchains is increasing like the amount of data availability. And you see this with Celestia as well. And so one like core metric that we've really looked at, and this kind of goes back to like the old Bitcoin days with like blocks, block size um, and how big the block should be. Should it be like peer to peer digital cash or should it be 
just kind of Bitcoin with like the one to two megabyte blocks. And so I think how much data you actually propagate is a very interesting metric because at the end of the day, whether you're using a layer two um, or layer one, if you're propagating more data, that's how many transactions you can like physically fit in a block. So if you have like a one megabyte block, that's every one second, you can fit one megabyte of data in that transaction. And that's important because in all these blockchains to really achieve consensus, unless like it's very like kind of weird scenario, you have to have two thirds plus one vote. And all that means is um, if you want to have a large number of full nodes for decentralization, you have to propagate increasing amount of data. And that just means you have to have higher bandwidth in between the nodes. And so the bandwidth actually becomes like a very big bottleneck in a lot of these blockchains. And I think like where Ethereum actually has like a unique point of view on um, the market is by keeping all these hardware requirements, as you said, low, Mike. And so Ethereum is trying to keep bandwidth like pretty low. But I think what we've seen, whether that being on the hardware side or networking side is both of these like in general continue to increase, uh, whether it's by increasing like different core count on the compute side or bandwidth increasing by just becoming more efficient. And I don't think we're near like on either case, like the physical limitations of either. And so our point of view is that each of these mm, both the compute and the bandwidth will continue to increase. And so we're very excited about the networks that are able to design to take advantage of those. Um, yeah, a little bit of a winded answer. I think going back though to the block space, if so the, the most like bullish argument to me is like, all right, so Ethereum today has like 80 kilobyte blocks. You're doing 4844, which I think goes to like one megabyte per of like, for like uh, data availability. And then once you have full sharding, it's about 16 megabytes uh, per block, or actually, I'm sorry, 32. That average with the block time for ETH to be 1.3 megabytes per second. And when you think about like your download and upload speed, 1.3 megabytes per second is actually not a very high like internet connection speed. And it's not a lot of data. And again, Ethereum has like purposely done this to try to keep the uh, hardware requirements small but in my point of view even in the most optimistic sense where you have a hundred percent of that 1.3 megabytes even this is with full like uh ethereum's like full sharding or not sharding but um data availability road roadmap rolled out you're only going to get like in a hundred percent of that block space is used for l2s zk rollups you're getting like between like 50 and 100 000 transactions per second and I just don't know if that's going to be enough for, for demand. And so I'm more optimistic on like these lower latency chains where you can keep everything composable in a single shard, have that lower latency because you have really fast block times, you have bigger blocks, you have slightly larger hardware. But I think as we were talking about earlier, that's okay to kind of an okay trade-off. I, I rambled a lot, so no. happy to no, it's, it see makes... if you guys have any questions. Yeah. Get, the unfortunate part about this is it gets super technical. And I I mean, like, obviously, like, I do a lot of podcasts with, like, technical people. 
And I think like the biggest thing, like going back to like answering your question, how do you know, like whether people are like kind of blowing smoke up their ass or like, I don't think they generally are. Like, again, I think all these things will work. It's just what you're optimizing for. And I think the best optimization in my point of view is keeping everything on a single shard. So you keep that composability. And really that's what spurred DeFi summer. And then also uh, keeping like the developer experience, like as easy as possible. And to me, that all makes sense like in a single shard type architecture when you start to like segment state across different like l2s or different app chains it's not necessarily bad it just adds a little bit more friction into the ecosystem and i think that will be uh, i mean i'm sure as you've even seen for like signup rates and uh, any like slight fragmentation in like a funnel like destroys like conversion rates and so i'm kind of at least now my point of view is like optimizing for the least friction on both on the developer side and uh user side so i think one just to, to piggyback I, I agree like i i ultimately think simpler is better i again it's i'll just reiterate what i said as a non-technical person it's harder for me to have a you know, a perspective on some of the more technical arguments you made. But I do think one thing that I would hope is people try to apply more standard, like business and analytical frameworks to some of this stuff. And one thing that I haven't, this is a line that sort of stuck out to me about some of the most vicious battles in web two are not actually horizontal battles, like battles between HubSpot and Salesforce, but it's vertical battles, you know, across one value chain where different companies compete for margin. And that's kind of what we were talking about more along the like relationship with the customer down to the person who's producing the, the physical good. And, you know, if you think about one intent, right, that eventually gets translated into a state difference, you know, the state intent at the wallet level and state difference at the eventual layer one level, if you have a roll app, then a layer two, then a layer one, Another way of saying that is you're going to compete for value across each one of those sheets. And then each one of those layers is going to have their own token with their own community yep. that wants value to accrue to that token, which means eventually you want yep. margin and cash flow, you know, uh, to, to go yep. there. Then it's it's sort of competition. And, and you know what? Maybe you're increasing the pie so much that you don't mind competing for margin on each individual transaction. And probably that's part of the roadmap. But yeah, I, I would love to see uh, more traditional uh, competitive frameworks or, a bit, uh, you know, traditional frameworks of competition be applied to, to crypto situations. I agree. No, it's, I mean, I, I mean, to Jason, your earlier question, I, 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 I mean, the reason why I started the podcast is to talk with like super interesting people like you and kind of like the life hack and like the cheat code of the podcast. And I think, I mean, as much as like I have my point of view, like I want to learn. And if anything, what I've learned in the blockchain industry is to not be a maxi and <laughs> because that can really humble you. And so I love talking with all these different smart people, obviously kind of over the years have kind of formed a point of view, but I am definitely curious and love to hear and learn other people's ideas and the different approaches that they're taking. 100%. And I think that's one of the most interesting things right now is like, no one knows what's going to happen. And there are these like frameworks for business, like Mike was just talking about, like 
I don't know if you take a lot of what Ben, if you read Stratechery by Ben Thompson, like aggregation theory, and like Mike mentioned the smiling curve and like uh, this idea of like commoditizing suppliers or like platforms versus aggregators, like probably a lot of those will apply to crypto. Probably crypto will yep. flip some of those things on their head too. So I think, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so fun to be in this industry is because it's all getting figured out in real time. So mm-hmm. definitely. Well, the podcast went a little bit longer, but I, I really do appreciate both of you. Appreciate what you do for the industry. Appreciate that each of you took a bet on yourselves and Blockworks. And because ultimately, you, you really are pushing the industry forward with all the different podcasts that you guys are doing with the research, with the events, with permissionless. So truly, thank you. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Logan. Been a joy. Thanks, Logan. Appreciate you having us.